Our Father, we thank you this morning that you are a revealing God. You have revealed to us the powerful nature of your hand that you created everything that is by the word of your mouth. We know it because you revealed it to us. You have revealed to us the way in which you have loved and cared for this world in the midst of rebellion in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all of our sin, You have revealed to us how faithful You are, how loving You are, how gracious You are, how steadfast You are. Father, thank You for revealing to us who You are and how You act so we can know You. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for revealing to us Your attributes of greatness and glory and mercy and love and justice and righteousness. Lord, we are not in the dark about who you are, what you love, what you hate, because you've revealed it to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us the beauty and glory of your Son, Jesus. Thank you that when we look upon Him, We're looking at the glory of God. Thank You that when we see His perfect life, when we see His loving ministry, when we see His death and His resurrection, that we're looking at the glorious revelation of Your love and Your mercy and Your grace. And Lord, You've revealed it to us. And Lord, we just want to come before You right now and thank You for revelation. We want to revel in revelation. We want to celebrate the fact that you have unblinded our eyes. You have unstopped our ears and we can see and hear the greatness of your beauty and your glory. And if not for anything else, we assemble together this morning as your people and we celebrate that you've spoken to us. Praise be to Your name forever and ever. May we say with the angels, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. You have revealed Yourself to us. And so we celebrate that right now and we ask now that You would do some more revealing. That You would show us more. That we might see You clearly and rejoice in You mightily. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, we're about to survey 1 Samuel chapters 1-22. through 22. As a refresher, um, because we're about to launch back into Samuel for the foreseeable future. And we don't want to jump back in without remembering where we've been and what we've learned and what all we've seen and how our hearts have been shaped and formed by this book. But the one thing that we need to do, church, is we need to keep in mind that 1 Samuel is like all of the rest of Scripture. It's a mirror into our soul. These chapters really reflect our own hearts. 
When we peer into the pages of Scripture and when we look at chapters 1 through 22 this morning, we need to realize that God is holding up a mirror and we're looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. And what is He showing us? Hey, He's showing us our allegiances. He's showing us our affections. He's showing us what we live for. And so when we go to the Word this morning, we need to understand that that's what God is doing for us. Before we begin to look at through the chapters, I want to get very real and very personal for a moment. There are only two kingdoms in this world. And you either belong to one or you belong to the other. And you're either living for one or you're living for the other. There, there is the kingdom of light where God has shined the light of His love and His mercy and His grace and His beauty and His excellence. And it is amazing as you behold the light of who He is and there is the kingdom of darkness where you live and grope in darkness and you think you see, but you don't see. And just when you think you're going to be happy and just when you think you're going to be satisfied, you find that happiness and satisfaction is elusive. The kingdom of light can also be called the kingdom of life. Because in the kingdom of life, there is worship and vitality and joy and passion and eternality about it. And there's the kingdom of death. And it promises life at every turn. But when you finally think that you've arrived, you realize this doesn't give me joy. This doesn't give me satisfaction. And so it is the revolving door of something that promises life but only delivers death. There is the kingdom that exalts God as, as the infinitely glorious king by which everyone bows before Him and sees Him as the highest, greatest, most glorious being who could ever exist and that we could ever imagine. And then listen to me. There's the kingdom over here that doesn't exalt God. It exalts yourself. Where you are high. You are exalted. And everything and everybody exists to praise you or to meet your needs and your desires and your longings. In other words, you are the infinitely most important person on the planet. There's the kingdom that is centered on Jesus Christ. His humility as He comes born of a virgin in a barn in, in, in great lowliness and lives a perfect, sinless, stainless, loving, merciful life that we can look at and we can admire and we can worship and then we can try to emulate. And then He dies a death that we deserve and then He rises from the dead powerfully that we might have life that He exalted into heaven where He sits right now as a mediator on our behalf and will one day return as King of kings and rule and reign for forever and ever and ever for those who have trusted in Him. There is that kingdom that centers on who He is. And then over here, there's the kingdom that is centered on you. It's centered on you. It's about your life. It's about your deal. It's about your family. It's about your passions. It's about your vacations. It's about your job. It's about your money. It's about your house. It's about your cars. It's about other people trying to feed into what your agenda is. And church... The greatest lie, the greatest lie 
that Satan has packaged and sold to you and I is that somehow we believe that because we're Christians, we can't be used to promote and advance the kingdom of darkness. We can be used every day to advance His kingdom. That is, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of meism. And the thing is this, is that Satan is very skillful. He's not going to come to us and say, listen, I've got this kingdom of darkness and I'm trying to rein in as many people toward darkness as I possibly can because I want you to bow down and worship me as Satan. No, he packages it in a way that says you're important. You're central. We need to do everything that we can to make you the most important person and exalted person. In other words, Satan packages and sells the kingdom of me. And then we buy into it. And then we advance it. And church, I just want you to know that at every given moment of your life, you are either advancing the kingdom of God or you're promoting the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. With every decision that you make, with every step that you take. Listen, men, men, when you go home this afternoon from three o'clock to eight o'clock tonight, you are either advancing the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light by the way that you treat your wife. Children, when your parents tell you to go to bed tonight, the way you treat your parents is either advancing the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Ladies, you're either advancing the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light by the way that you dress and the, and the reason that you dress that way. It is as simple and as detailed and as minute as that, that in every moment you're either advancing or promoting the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so we are revealing at every moment what kingdom has the tightest grip on our heart. Just think about that. With every website that we visit, we're revealing which kingdom has the tightest grip on our heart. With every show that we watch, we're revealing what kingdom has the tightest grip on our heart. With every dollar that we spend, we're revealing what kingdom has the tightest grip on our heart. And so, I want to invite you right now for, to survey chapters 1 through 22 of 1 Samuel with the purpose of looking at our own hearts, with the purpose of examining what kingdom has the tightest grip on our heart, on our allegiance, on our affection, on our purposes. What kingdom is primary to me? What, pri- what kingdom is primary to you? And so now I want to invite you to begin in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. It is 3,000 years ago. And judges have been leading and ruling the land. And the people have have basically said, you know what, we're going to do whatever is right in our own eyes. That's how we're going to live. That's how we're going to worship. That's how we're going to treat one another. That's how we're going to relate to other nations around us. And so it's really a gray day in the kingdom of Israel at this time. And the first thing that we see in the book of Samuel is that there is this woman named Hannah who is married and and she also has another woman in her life who is also married to the same man. The man's name is Elkanah. 
This other lady's name is Panina. And, and so you have two women married to one man. And it's, a, it's an ugly thing. It's not a right thing. It doesn't please the Lord. But that's the, that's the nature of the relationship. And if you'll look down at chapter 1, verse 6, it says that Hannah's rival... Hannah's rival, that is Panina. Hannah's rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. Panina used to provoke Hannah. And so Hannah wept and would not eat. In other words, Panina made fun of Hannah because she didn't have any kids. And so... Here Hannah is, a worshiper of God, going to the temple every year to offer sacrifices and to celebrate the goodness of God, and she has grief in her heart. And so what does she do? Look down at verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, he'll be a priest. He'll be a prophet. He will be fully in your service if you will give me a son. I don't want him for me. I want him for you, she's saying. And so she cries out to the Lord and asks of this. Look down at verse 19. And so... The Lord remember Hannah's request, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. That's where we get the name of this book, Samuel. Samuel is born at the request of Hannah and God's willingness to grant her request as she cries out in desperation. And so, look down at chapter 2. Hannah, Hannah prays, and she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She goes on to pray an incredible prayer of exaltation to God. But what we find out at the very beginning of this book is that God is building his kingdom and he is exalting his greatness through the hardships of life and through the humility of our hearts. You see, she was going through hardship and suffering and difficulty and pain, and she was being persecuted. But as she was doing that, she didn't run away from God. Church, where did she run? She ran to him. And you and I are tempted in our lives that when we're really being persecuted, we have physical problems. We feel like our families are kind of turning against us. Nobody loves us. Nobody cares for us. We're tempted to escape and to try to run to things that we think are going to ease our pain. And oftentimes, most often, it's not the Lord himself. But what Hannah does at the very beginning is she says, you know what? I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm not going to run away from him. I'm going to run to him because I know that in God is my only place of refuge. In God is my only hope. In God is the only place I know that I'll be loved and cared for and not judged, but rather I can find my refuge and help in him. Okay, so that's that's how the book gets kicked off. And that's and, and the Lord specifically wants to teach us that lesson, that lesson. And church. Um. I think we're missing, I think we're missing the boat 
in the area of thankfulness and exaltation to God in His mercies. You realize that we are more willing to dwell on one loss than we are to thank God for a hundred mercies in our life. And what God is showing us, there is a woman who suffered for a long time, and yet God answers her prayers, and she gives a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God because she was unwilling to just move on with her life. Could you think about it? Oh, I got to get the diapers. I got to make sure this is done right. I got to do this. I got to do that. But before she does any of those things, she bows before her God and thanks him for this one mercy. Let us not be any different. Let us not be any different. So let's, let's look now on into chapter 2. Because immediately, as God is building His kingdom, He's showing us that leadership is in a crisis. Leadership is in absolute chaos. And there is this priest named, named Eli. And Eli looks like he's a good guy, but the problem is he's not diligent in his leadership. He's not visionary in his leadership. He's not, he's not particularly um, focused on the holiness and the righteousness of what godly leaders should be. And so look down at verse 17. The sin of the young men, that is the sin of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with what? Contempt. The leaders in God's temple hate God's offerings. The leaders in God's temple hate God's sacrifices. Essentially, the leaders of worship hate the worship of God. That is the nature of leadership in this, in this time. And so what we find is an abuse of leadership and a neglect of leadership among the people of God. And if you look down at verse 25, it says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Listen, God judges very righteously and eternally those leaders who abuse and neglect His people. 29 says, When... Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? In other words, these leaders were stealing from God's people so that they could satisfy the lust of their flesh. And so what does, what does God say? He says, this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Church, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, but there is some immediate fulfillment of this promise that God has made, but the ultimate fulfillment we find in who? Jesus Christ. He is the great priest. He is the anointed one. And he is the perfect priest who fulfills every priestly role that we need as a people who are sinful. And so, in the midst of this chaos of leadership, what does God do? He raises up leaders who will listen to his voice, who will obey his word, who will speak his message in order to advance his kingdom. And so there's this little boy Eli, uh, little boy Samuel who's been born of Hannah and he's been given over to the Lord's work and he's, a, he's just a little guy. 
And he's over in the temple and he's trying to learn from Eli, but mostly learning from God and his word. And look down at verse 10. The Lord came and stood, calling at other times, saying, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel, this little guy, he says, speak for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And on that day, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I'll declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That is the first revelation from God that Samuel receives, and it is a revelation of judgment on leaders. Because God is saying there is a chasm of leadership. There is an immorality in the leadership. The leadership is stealing from my people, abusing my people, and I'm not going to have it anymore. I need leaders who are going to listen to my voice, who are going to obey my word, who are going to love my revelation and run to it constantly. And church, I want to tell you, God's called you to an element of leadership. I don't care whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a boy or a girl, God has called you to influence people for Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what we need is we need a group of people who are going to listen to the voice of God. We need a group of people who are willing to turn off the television. A group of people who are willing to close down the windows on the computer. Who are willing to unplug our iPhones and our iPhones and cut off Facebook and open up the Word of God and say, God, teach me. God, speak to me. Reveal your glory to me. Because if we don't do that, we're nothing different than Hophni and Phinehas because we're unwilling to listen to and hear from and revel in God's glorious Word. And so, it's a call to leadership. This this whole book is a call for us to be greater leaders. So look down, if you will, at chapter 4. There are... Three scenes that unfold in four, five, and six that are really amazing. When we went through it, we called it the hijack of God, the hand of God, and the holiness of God. And I told Ben Brown this morning that this particular event in the book of Samuel was probably least familiar to me before we studied it this year, and it's the one that's had the greatest impact on my heart. But if you'll look down... The Philistines have, uh, have attacked Israel. And Israel is hyperventilating about what they should do. And, oh no, they're about to defeat us. What can we possibly do? Can, can we get God on our side? And, 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 and in order to get God on our side, why don't, we, why don't we go and get the ark? Yeah, let's get the ark. That'll help us. Even though we hate God, even though we have contempt for God himself, let's go get the ark and we'll use him as like a four leaf clover and we'll come and we'll put it in the camp and that'll give us the victory. And so they bring the ark of God into the camp and there is this thundering and quaking and the Philistines are immediately afraid because of all of the noise and the ruckus that's going on. But they strengthen themselves and they attack the the Israelites and they defeat the Israelites and they capture the ark of God and the ark of God then goes back over into into uh, Philistia. And let's just pick up right here. I think we're on 4, 4, uh, 12, 
412 and following. Yeah. So a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. Shiloh's where Israel worships. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching. His heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Eli heard the sound of the cry. What's going on, he says. So Eli is 98 years old. His eyes are set so he can't see. And so the man said to Eli, well, I'm the one who's come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go? Well, he who brought the news answered said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. The man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. And then the daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phinehas, who was pregnant, goes into this state where she ultimately gives birth and she's about to die and the baby comes out and she names the baby. Can anybody remember what, what it is? Ichabod, which means in Hebrew, without glory. There is no glory, for the glory has departed from Israel. There could be no greater commentary on the status of the nation of Israel than what she named her son. The glory has departed. And so what happens? The Philistines then take the ark of God and put it in their worship temple. They worship a a false god, an idol called Dagon. Look down at chapter 5. When the people in Ashdod rose early the next day and they walked into their temple, Dagon, this idol, this statue, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is the mighty hand of a sovereign God who is saying, I'm in control. All other gods, all other idols, all other things will ultimately bow down to me. And I'm going to demonstrate that by by manipulating the statue. And so, he's also saying in the midst of this, I'm not going to be used as a good luck charm. And what we walk through, church, is that the entirety of this passage, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and right in the very beginning of chapter 7, is an underlying problem of irreverence. Irreverence for God. And God is calling us as a people to revel in grace, to enjoy His blessings, certainly to watch good television shows or wonderful movies or listen to great music on our iPad, on our iPhones and, and, and have a really grand time and go on wonderful vacations. God, God allows for that and He wants us to revel in that, but he, we must do it in a spirit of reverence before Him so that we are not pursuing our own kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, but rather His kingdom. Everything that we do, whether it be for work or entertainment or amusement or leisure, should tend toward the building up of the kingdom of God and reverencing His holiness. And so, if you look down at chapter 6, there, uh, kind of down toward verse 20, 
ultimately the ark of God by God's sovereign hand makes it back into Israel. And some Israelites find the ark and it comes to them. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? They're scared because they yet treated the ark with irreverence and 70 of the men are struck down like that because they thought the ark of God was a common thing. And so they basically said, get God away from us because we don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, it leads us into an an amazing turn of events among the people of Israel and their desires and what they want. They have been intimidated by all that's happened. They've been scared. They've looked around at all of the other nations and how they have a king and they want to be like the other nations. They don't want to reverence God. They don't want to worship God the way that God has designed. And so if you'll look down at chapter 7, God provides some some rescue. He provides... He, he provides some, some saving in, in chapter 12. I'm sorry, in chapter 7, says that the Lord really saves Israel. In verse 10, says Samuel is offering up the burnt offering. And the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw the Philistines into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And so Samuel recognizes what God has done for Israel, even though they've been irreverent, even though they've been unworshipful. And so Samuel takes a stone and he calls it Ebenezer. He builds an altar, essentially. And he says, because the Lord has helped us. And so here you have this prophet of God who serves also as a priest, the voice of God, and he intercedes for them and he's trying to draw them toward worshiping God who is the great and glorious royal eternal king. And then look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, even though God has been a great king for them, they say in chapter 5, Samuel, appoint for us a king like all the nations. The thing displeased Samuel. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, though, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And so God provides... a, a a theological understanding of what's going on here. He's saying, Samuel, it's not so much you that they hate. It's me. It's not so much you that they're rejecting. It's me that they're rejecting. They want the world instead of me. And so this is what I'm going to do. I am going to give them what they want so that I can show them the kind of king that I actually am. Look down at verse 19. That's where he says, uh, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations. Verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. I think we would be doing right for us to pause a moment and for us to ask the question, is there any area of our lives in any area of our church life where we really just want to be like the world. We just want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the people around us. And we want God. And we certainly want His favor and we want His grace. We want His blessing. But more than anything else, we want to experience the thrills and frills 
of life in the world too. I'm telling you, church, I'm convinced that God is never going to bless us and He's not going to advance His kingdom through us unless we say, you know what, I don't need what the world has. I don't need to be like the world is. All I need is God my King, Jesus Christ my mediator, and I need to live for Him and our church needs to give our whole selves over to Him. Look down at chapter 9. So... Saul has chosen this guy, Saul. It's a really crazy story about how, how it all comes about. Uh, he's taller. He's better looking. He's, he's kind of a, an odd kind of guy. And in, chap, in verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. What we said during this time, because we know that Saul is not going to turn out really well, what we said is that in his infinite wisdom and his unfailing love, God gives Israel the kind of king that they want in order to reveal to them the kind of king that he is that God is, so that it ultimately will drive them to worship Him and to love Him alone. Look down at chapter 10. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, that's verse 9, I apologize, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And they begin to anoint him king. They begin to anoint this Saul, the son of Kish, who's taller and more handsome than everybody else king. And so finally, down in, in verse 24, in verse 24, Samuel says, Do you see who the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! They finally got what they wanted. And so that carries us to chapter 11. And Nahash the Ammonite, this is an Ammonite leader, imposes on a city in Israel. And he says, on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your eyes and bring disgrace on all of Israel. He makes a severe threat. And the people say, well, we might make this treaty with you, but let us go see if we can find some help. And so word gets down to Saul, the, the kind of the newly appointed king. And in verse 11, it says, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And Israel celebrates over the victory that they win against the Ammonites. And so Saul then says, look, I know there were folks who were jealous of me or angry with me. We're not going to put anybody to death who's part of Israel because God's work to salvation. And Samuel says, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Let's renew the kingdom today at the work that God has done. And at this point, church, there's really a transition in prominent leadership. It's really transferred from Samuel 
over to Saul. And Samuel realizes that. And Samuel understands that, that things might not go very well. And so just like if you were a leader and you've poured your heart and your soul, your mind, your time, and all of your life into somebody's good, into a whole group, group of people's good, you've made sacrifices, you've loved, and you've led in a way that you're hoping will advance the kingdom of God, and then all of a sudden you realize that your time in leading these people is done and you have one last shot to give them a message. That's what Samuel does in chapter 12. And you know what he says? He says, you need to repent. You need to repent of not loving God and not serving God and reverencing God. You need to renew your mind and your hearts in His goodness and in His ultimate uh, royalty. You need to not look at the people or of, for, or of the nations and rather look at God who is glorious and find your lead and, and your shepherding love from Him and Him alone. He says you need to repent with all your heart. That's the message that this leader, this good leader, gave to the people of Israel. So look down at chapter 13. After that message happens, Saul goes out and he fights with Philistines. And Saul's a, a, a decent warrior. He's, he, he knows what he's doing. But if you look down at verse 8 in chapter 13, Saul waited seven days, the time that Samuel had appointed for him to wait. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. And I'm like, oh no, what, what, what should I do? And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And instead of waiting on Samuel, he offers the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, the role that Samuel should fill, behold, who comes walking up? Who comes walking up, church? Samuel does. And so Saul went out to meet him and greet him and act like nothing was wrong. And so Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done, Saul? And Saul says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, I said, now the Philistines are going to come. They're, they're going to come down to me at, at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. And so what did I do? I forced myself to make the offering. And Samuel said, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Look at verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. This is really the beginning of the end for King Saul. Even though things looked promising for him, he looked like he fit the bill because he was unwilling to be patient, because he was unwilling to wait on the Lord, because he had the fear of man, and his, his fear of man was greater than his fear and his love for God. He decided to take matters in his own hands and do what he thought was best. Church, Every one of us get into very difficult situations in our lives. And in those moments, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Like, we know what God's Word has said. We know what He said about trusting Him. 
running to Him, reveling in the cross, finding hope and help in His Scriptures, learning principles that will help us in decision-making, that we know that we're underneath His authority and His blessing and His love. But when a family member leaves, or we lose a job, or we experience a traumatic event, or our life just doesn't unfold the way that we had dreamed, we're tempted to take matters in our own hands. To essentially shut this thing up, put it on the shelf, and try to manage our lives the best that we know how. I'm going to tell you, whenever we do that, not only are we doing what is foolish, but it is at those moments when we are promoting and advancing the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of light. We need to know that about ourselves and we need to constantly run underneath the loving and wonderful authority of our God at the hardest moments of our life. Saul didn't do it and it cost him his kingship and it ultimately cost him his life. Now, we're not going to be able to spend much time because we're about running out on Jonathan. One thing about old Jonathan, Saul's son, is that he is a beacon. He is an example of faith and hope in God above, uh, against all odds. It's yeah. what he is. Yeah. And so one thing that you and I can do as we look at the life of Jonathan and the hope of Jonathan is say, Lord, give me faith like that. Give me faith that says, that says, oh, I know there's a big army up there. And I know that most of my fellow soldiers are scared to death, but I'm going to press on and I'm going to fight the fight for Israel because I know that God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? And if God is for us, who can successfully oppose us? And so Jonathan fights numerous fights for the glory of God and the advancing of the kingdom. And we should learn from his example. Now, look down. What chapter are we in here? Chapter 14, verse 24. Saul gives some bad leadership here, and I just want you to just see this. He, he says, look, I'm, we, we've got to just run after the Philistines and just, and just crush them. And he, says, uh, he says, Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I'm avenged on my enemies. This is a really foolish vow. Here you have soldiers who are fighting all day, hand-to-hand combat, fists, Knives, anything that they can get their hands on because Israel, they don't have a lot of wonderful weaponry. And yet he tells the soldiers they can't eat. They can't nourish themselves for the fight. And so he's making foolish decisions. And his son Jonathan is out fighting valiantly. He didn't hear the vow. And so he eats some honey. And so ultimately Saul gets really mad because his son eats this food that he was quote unquote not supposed to eat. And if you look down at 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 44, Saul says, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He's speaking to his own son. And in order to uphold his own reputation and in order to hold his own um, Being exalted before the people, he declares that his son must die. And what do the people do? Y'all remember? There's no way. (laughs) There's no way we are putting Jonathan to death because he is the one example of faith and courage and and vitality in our kingdom. And so we read the tragic story unfold in chapter 15 where the Amalekites 
are in opposition to God's holiness and His glory, and they have treated God's people terribly. And God says to Saul, go and wipe them all out. Devote them all to destruction. Don't bring anything back. And instead of obeying the voice of the Lord, Saul keeps the king, he keeps the best animals, and he does so in order to exalt himself. As a matter of fact, chapter 15 says that Saul even built a monument to himself. He built a monument to himself. And so you see his selfish, self-centered nature of this kingdom. And listen, listen church, this is why I started the way I started and it's why that we must have our hearts exposed right here. Saul is the king of God's kingdom. He's the leader in God's kingdom. Everybody thinks that he is advancing the kingdom of God and that's what what he's all about. But in reality, even though he's under the auspices and the governance of God's kingdom, whose kingdom is Saul really building? So don't dare think that you and I can't come to church every Sunday and on Wednesdays and be a part of all the fellowships that we do and somehow not build our own kingdom. Church, let's be warned by Saul. Let's don't build our own kingdom. Let's contribute to the advancing and the promoting of God's great kingdom. Okay, let's put it a little bit in fast forward so that we can finish this off. In chapter 16, the Lord anoints a new king whose heart will beat for his glory. Look down at verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen, don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's not talking about Saul. He's talking about uh, a guy named Eliab. It's a brother of of David. And so what what does the Lord say? He says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's why you and I should stay really close to His Word and underneath His authority because I'm telling you, we are hardwired in our depravity not to look at our own hearts and not to look at the hearts of other people. We are hardwired to just be impressed by and flock to the way people look, the way they appear. Do you think that it is any coincidence that the largest churches in America are led by men who are really good looking. No, I don't think it's a coincidence. Because we flock to things that we enjoy looking at and that we, that we just love appearances. But we're not that concerned about what's going on. The largest church in America today is meeting by a guy who is extraordinarily handsome, but he doesn't give you anything that's in this book. Why? Because we want to look at the outward appearance rather than our own hearts. God forbid that at Redeemer Church. So let's let's see in chapter 17. Boy, what an amazing story. But I just want to remind you of the one principle that we learned. The one principle that we learned in the story of David and Goliath 
as this newly appointed king is coming on the scene, is that the war for God's glory is first, is first battled on the turf of what? Does anybody remember? It is first battled on the turf of your heart. On your heart. And then once your heart has experienced triumph, once your heart has experienced victory in Christ, in God's love, in His mercy, then it's won every single day on the battlefield of your life. So it's your heart, then your life. Your heart, then your life. It's heart, then your life. And you're, if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I just need to get my life right. I just need to start acting better. I need to start drinking less. I need to start working more. I need to start treating people better. I need to start visiting my grandmother more. I need to do this. I need to do that. I would say, wait a minute, stop. Don't do any of that yet. Why don't you get your heart right with God? Why don't you get your heart warmed in the, in the affection of God's love for you in Jesus Christ? How He forgives you and He cares for you and He has a plan for you in His kingdom if you'll just come to Him and revel in His love. Alright. So chapter 18, David and Jonathan form this friendship. And, and what we said here is that the greatest friendships, the greatest friendships are united not on a mutual love for one another, where I see what is wonderful about you and love it. You see what is wonderful about me and love it. And so we love each other because we see in each other what is just awesome. No, the greatest friendships are built when the central theme of the friendship is on the glory of God. So that if my heart beats for the glory of God and your heart beats for the glory of God and we're absolutely committed to that, David, then you and I are going to have the best kind of friendship we possibly can have. And that's the kind of friendship that Saul and Jonathan enjoyed and that's the partnership and the covenant that they enjoyed. In chapters 19 and 20, Saul goes crazy. He becomes jealous and zealous to kill David. And so he tries to kill him and Jonathan protects him. And David just basically tries to stay alive. And you have this constant back and forth in in Saul's pursuit of David because David is now receiving glory from the people of Israel because he's a great warrior. He's a mighty man. He loves God. And all the people are saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David his what? Ten thousands. And because Saul is all about his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom, if David's getting the glory, that means he's not and his life is meaningless. And we finished up our our last kind of section of this sermon series in chapters 21 and chapters 22. And David's on the run and he finds refuge in a number of different places. And he finds refuge uh, with this priest named Ahimelech at the city of Nob. And Ahimelech helps David out, but Ahimelech doesn't even know that Saul is in opposition to David. He just thinks he's helping out the servant of the king. And so he provides him bread and nourishment. And then David leaves. Saul is so self-centered and so zealous to kill David that when Saul finds out that this priest helped out David, he calls the priest and all of the other priests that are in Nob to himself, and he has every one of them executed. And then he sends this guy, Doeg the Edomite, to go back to Nob, the city, and kill everybody in it. It shows you the absolute maniacness of Saul. And if you look down at the end of chapter 22, 
Saul has had everybody killed in that city. There's only one man who has escaped. His name is Abiathar. Abiathar finds his way to David. He gives the report to David. And David says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I've occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me, you'll be in safekeeping. And so David promises safety to Abiathar because he's the Lord's anointed and he'll find safety there. Church, I want you to bow your head and I want you to close your eyes if you're willing. And I want us to bring this whole review to a a pinnacle point. And, and, And I want to say this, I want to say this, if you don't stay with me right here, the last 50 minutes would have been for naught. So stay with me so that your heart can be ministered to, so that you can receive hope and joy in life. The first thing I want to say right now with your heads bowed in a worshipful spirit to the Lord is that God sees you. God hears you. And God is willing to answer your prayers just like He answered Hannah's prayers. He is not oblivious to you. He he is not just, I don't care about you. No, He cares. He sees. He knows. He listens. Run to Him today. And at the very very time that He sees and cares and loves you, He also is a judge. He crushes the unholy leaders who lead people astray. He triumphs over them. I want to say to you, run to good leaders. Run to leaders who love you and demonstrate love for you, the kind of love that Christ can offer to you. Don't keep a distance from God's leaders. Get close to them that you might receive grace and mercy through them. God saves. God shepherds. God delivers. God forgives. God upholds you. In your life, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter how you've sinned this week or this month or the last decade, God can be a saving God. He can be a forgiving God for you. He will shepherd you through all your difficulties if you'll call on Him and run to Him. And I want you to know right now that God grieves. He grieves over your loss. He grieves over your sin. He grieves over bad leadership. He grieves when he's not reverenced the way he should. But at the same time that he grieves, church, he loves and he works and he's building his kingdom through people like you and me. And the one thing that we must do is we must run to Jesus Christ today. Listen, Samuel was a great prophet, but he wasn't a prophet like Jesus. 
Jesus is the perfect prophet because not only does he speak the words of God, he embodies the very nature of God. Run to Christ today because he's the perfect priest. Hophni and Phinehas were terrible priests. Eli was a neglectful priest. There were priests all over who who just weren't sufficient. But we have a great high priest who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us today, who forgives every one of our sins, who advocates for every one of our needs, who is just saying to you today, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus Christ is the perfect king. Saul was a lousy king. David is going to be a king that is after his heart but make terrible mistakes. But we can run to Christ because His reign is perfect. His love is pure. His forgiveness is eternal. We can run to Him. We can bow before Him as He is on His throne and say, Glory to you, our great God and King, Jesus Christ. Do that today, church. Do that today. Revel in Christ as He's been revealed to us because we have no other hope. In light of the sermon and in light of that song, and we ask the question, how should we respond? I think we first probably should respond and ask, What is a kingdom? A kingdom is the rule of one man over a nation or over a people. And in that rule, that man provides stability and strength and freedom and joy and liberation and comfort because you know that you're being ruled by a man who is capable. And I think the way to respond then is for us to run to the king and submit to the king's authority and to revel in his love and to understand his comforting nature and to understand that he's going to protect us and love us and fight for us. He's already died for us. He's already risen from the dead on our part. We just need to come underneath his authority and say, king, here here we are. Here we are so, so that when our king says things like, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know you're listening to a good king and so you say, you know what, I should do that. Or when he says, you know, you've heard that it was said that if you commit adultery, you know, it's wrong. But I said, if you look after a woman with lust in your eyes, you're already guilty of it. You should probably say, you know what, I I probably shouldn't do that. I've got a good king. He's caring for me. He's comforting for me. Let me just submit to his authority because I know he's got my best interest at heart. And so let's, let's respond today in this last song about our King Jesus Christ and let's submit every aspect of our heart and our life to him because he's a good king.